because they are easy, but because they are hard. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. A date which will live in infamy. I still have a dream. Good night. And good luck. It's One American Podcast, and we are live with Hannah Griff. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you. Who are you, and what are you doing here? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, my name is Hannah Griff. I just graduated from Portland State. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. With a degree in urban and public affairs, so I survived a political program there. Um, wow. And now I'm just kind of figuring out what my next move is. I'm super heavy into, you know, oh, I have a cat there. <laughs> I'm super heavy into political Twitter. And um, I write for the Rogue Review as well as for my own website, which is yeahrightgirl.com. Um, lots of just political commentary stuff. And yeah, stuff like that. It's fun. Awesome. So what do you say your degree was in again? Urban and public affairs. So it's kind Urban of like public science, affairs. but it's like a little more well-rounded. There's more criminal justice classes, um, mm. more like public service classes, uh, community-centered kind of things. So it's just like more well-rounded politics rather than just political science. So what was it like going through that curriculum in Portland? I didn't find another student who outwardly shared the same views as me until literally my very last term, which was just summer term. Um, so that just gives you a little hint <laughs> into mm -hmm. Portland State. Um, I mean, some of the teachers are really great and, you know, teach objectively. Uh, I took a class from or four classes from the same professor because he was just awesome. And I, I knew he was kind of a liberal, but he didn't teach that way. And I appreciated that because so many teachers or and professors would just teach kind of their view into the curriculum as though it was fact and you know people who aren't as politically tuned in as I am wouldn't necessarily realize that just because of how all the information was presented so it was a lot of like battling that I had teachers come after me um because of my twitter and it yeah it was crazy so I finally found some friends in my last term <laughs> So you weren't able to keep your views from your professors? By nature, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was a yeah. highly political program and opinion on this. And so it was encouraged, but mm -hmm. it was obvious what was encouraged, you know. Right. So do you think that like um, any... Um any teachers were, were vindictive and that they would, you know, kind of dock points from papers and exams because they, they were familiar with your, your, your leaning. Um, I had that experience early, like in my lower mm -hmm. classes. I, luckily the teachers grade, you know, pretty fairly. I keep saying teachers, I should say professors, but they yeah, no, I made the mistake too. <laughs> they grade pretty fairly. Um, the teacher that I had like a lot of problems with, she came after me because of my Twitter, tried to like report me to the dean. I think she did report me to the dean. Um, but I ended What she want the dean to do? Just expel you? They wanted me to delete certain tweets off of my Twitter. And so I wasn't having that. And 
I told them that and it was a big thing for a minute, but they ended up backing down because I was not going to be quiet about it. Um, but I, you know, I worked hard in her class. I did all the work and I earned an A and she gave me an A. So, um, I would say my grades weren't affected. It was more just like my experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, with, with a degree in urban and public affairs, is there like an emphasis on city planning or the politics of in, in, in metropolitan areas specifically or? Yeah, there is. And that's the thing you could, it was very much, I took a lot of community-based classes, Mm -hmm. um, doing community work and community projects, um, researching, you know, local organizations, that kind of thing. It's very grassroots. Um, and it is, does have like an urban, slash city vibe just because Portland state is in the city, but I didn't have to take classes that necessarily were tailored to that. The Mm -hmm. course, you know, options for that degree were vast. So you could kind of like choose and pick what you liked to take. So I took a lot of criminal justice classes, for example. So uh, what was it like to be in Portland during uh, 2020? So I actually worked in downtown Portland. Um, I never went to class on campus. I did my almost, yeah, my entire last two years online because um, I worked full time. But I did work downtown. I stopped working downtown right around whenever the lockdown started. So it must have been end of March 2020. And I've worked from home since then. So I luckily don't have to be around the city much anymore. Um, but the couple times I've gone, you know, recently, it's just sad. It's not. So was the city really burning? Like, you know, kind of how it was depicted by the right. Oh yeah. People on Twitter were, I remember getting very, you know, irritated with people on Twitter who were like, oh, it's just propaganda. They want you to make, they want you to believe that it's worse than it is. And it's not really reality, but (laughs) it was, I mean, certain parts of downtown were fine, but there was a lot of parts especially when you come in like from the freeways so kind of like the main part of downtown that you hit first was the worst part um Mm. yeah and yeah it was as bad as the pictures and the videos made it out to be that was real so you have in your twitter bio that you're a gun gun toter uh did you did you were you just carrying or did you keep in your car i don't know how the laws are on oregon for that i imagine it's probably pretty uh tumultuous yeah with a concealed you can carry um, yeah, to be on your person or like in a bag that you carry. Um, I think it's actually illegal to keep it in your car if you don't have a license. But luckily, Oregon's gun laws are pretty conservative considering how liberal our other politics are. Right. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, gun people in Oregon, generally just like in the rural areas. Right. Because just there's a hunt, there's like a lot of hunting and sort of outdoor recreation type. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, constituents. Out- yeah outside of like Portland and Eugene are really like the liberal hotspots, which are the highly, you know, densely populated spots. Eugene is where university of Oregon is. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are really what swing the whole state blue. Every, almost every other County, I think in Oregon and any of Eastern Oregon, or even, you know, just East of the city. And I think along the coast, that's pretty all, all conservative. Southern Oregon is very conservative. So it's just those two little spots that kind of ruin it for everyone else. Yeah. I grew up in Illinois and that was kind of the way it was uh, when I was growing up is that it was Cook County basically just determined that the state was blue, even though everywhere else in Illinois is, you know, super, a lot of farmers and very rural and 
it was just it's just one of those things that cities seem to really outweigh the the rest of the states. What's that? I was saying it's just one of those things where cities seem to really outweigh the politics of the rest of the state. Oh you yeah, know, just generally. And it's not it's unfair really because like where I live, I don't live in Portland. Um, I live out kind of in the farmlands, and really mm-hmm. so much of farmlands and you know ranchers and people who tend to be very, very much conservative. And I know that, you know, there is this, I've been seeing a big push um, on social media of just kind of red slash right wing conservatives in Oregon who are just sick of Portland dictate Portland and Eugene and Salem dictating everything for us. Um, So I'm hopeful that there can be kind of, you know, a resurgence, but did you ever get the chance to meet the mayor? Fortunately and unfortunately, no. <laughs> that guy is that guy's such a quack. I remember really that, that that video of him getting approached. He was like on a date or something, and he was getting approached, and people he was just getting slammed, and he he acted like such a such a tool about it. Yeah, I mean, he's a child, and like he he's when he ran for re-election, his the person he was running against was a literal communist. Like that's not a joke. She was literally a communist. So wow. it's like he was the lesser of two evils, but he is completely incompetent as it is. So it was, there was no winning that. <laughs> so when you first moved to Portland, was it awesome? Cause I, I live in Austin, Texas now, and I lived in Nashville, Tennessee for seven years. And you know, Nashville is a blue city in a red state, but you know, I, when I lived there in Nashville, it was 2010 and, it, you know, it was fairly apolitical and it was just awesome. You know, you could, you could kind of experience the city without um, being dragged down by the, the, the sort of political weight of it. Uh, what was it like when you first moved to Portland? Was it kind of like that? You could just do all the cool stuff. Yeah. So I was actually born and raised um, near Portland in a suburb outside of Portland. Um, I moved to California for a little while after high school for a few years, but I ended up coming home because I missed it so much. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I did the California thing and that was fun, but I was over it and I was ready to come home because I did. I truly loved the city. I worked in the city for four years, I think, before um, coronavirus shut everything down. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it was an amazing spot and I remember even like in high school it was always the fun thing like everyone would go downtown and like go out for dinner and it was just that's what everyone did because we were from you know a small little town with nothing to do and so everyone going into Portland that was the fun thing and even you know up until right before COVID it was fun to go stay in a hotel for a night and just you know do the Portland thing but I wouldn't even consider doing that now like I wouldn't I avoid Portland at all costs so it's just crazy how much it's changed. It's really sad. What part of California were you in? San Francisco? Huntington Beach. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> you were in Huntington Beach. Beach. Okay. Yeah, I lived I in Laguna Niguel for a while. Oh, okay. Or yeah, the yeah. one little like red dot down there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I lived there for three years until uh, about a year ago. Then we moved to Austin. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, I moved home, yeah. I think, five years ago now. But it was fun. I liked my time there. You know, it was fun being at the beach all the time. Yeah, that's kind of what I, I, you know, I I have a small business, so I loved California in terms of the the weather and the beach. But when you have to work twenty hours a day in order to pay the bills, you know, you don't really get to enjoy that stuff. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. It's not fun. Uh, I I remember my, 
I was living two blocks from the beach in Huntington and going to school and working. And I was getting up at like 4.45 to do a nanny job. And then I would go to class and then I would have another nanny job after class. And then I would go work another job in the evening. So it was like, yeah, I'm living two blocks from the beach, but what good is it? Cause I'm working my ass off. I can't even go to the beach. Yeah, I know. It's such a grind. But man, if you if you're if you have infinite money, California is a pretty cool place to be. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so um so I I noticed I mentioned or I I noticed that you mentioned having taken or as sort of electively a lot of criminal justice stuff. Are are you like passionate about criminal justice reform or what are your thoughts on that because um you know, obviously there's a lot of very uh, scary things going on in terms of who's getting arrested for what and and due process being violated. So I'm interested to hear what you have to think about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was definitely inspired by all the happenings in the world. Um, And I was raised by a a police officer. My dad's a cop. And so I do have a sympathetic side to it, but I also do believe that reform can and does need to happen. And I think that there's ways that we can go about that that make so much more sense than defund the police and oh, let's do community building programs, but what does that even really mean? Um, Because, you know, we saw that in the awful case of Officer Ella French. She was on one of those community building service teams, and she still died getting shot. So obviously that wasn't effective. Their messaging wasn't right. Um, So I just think that there's a lot that can be explored in terms of more conservative slash liberty-minded reform that would benefit everybody that people just, you know, maybe aren't thinking of yet or aren't taking seriously. So I was really inspired by that because I'm so annoyed by the defund the police and the extreme and the back the blue no matter who and the extreme on both sides because that's not reality. Everything is gray. So that needs to be acknowledged and addressed in that manner, I think. Yeah, and well, and maybe, maybe this is my white privilege, but um, you know, my concern isn't really so much with the police as it is with the experience of everything that happens from the time of arrest and being charged to like the end of a trial. Like, I'm I'm just really worried about the due process and whether or not there's actually enough evidence for charges. And then and then if you get convicted of something, it becomes an incredibly slippery slope because you know there's so many more rules that you have to follow in terms of probation and and things like that so it's it's much it becomes much easier to get in trouble again and so it seems like a lot of people just get stuck in this cycle of just repeatedly getting in trouble yeah definitely that was something that i studied a lot um in my classes was just the you know cycle of why people reoffend and end up back in jail again and again and again because you see these patterns all over the country it's not just in certain places it's happening everywhere so obviously this is an institutional problem this is not a criminal problem um and i think that when it comes to things like that you know when i speak of police reform i'm thinking more of like training protocols that are different and and those along those lines but i think that what you're speaking of like the legal side of it there's definitely opportunity and need for reform there in a liberty sense completely um i think conservatives have a tendency to kind of throw the book at people um and i completely disagree with that i'm not i'm anti-death penalty like um so yeah i think you're right in that a lot of reform needs to come to the legal side and i would definitely be introduced or 
you know, interested in being introduced to that side of legal. I've worked as a paralegal for five years until I put myself through school, um, not in criminal work, but, you know, it's never more than a stone's throw away when you're already in it. Um, mm -hmm. And I would totally be interested in exploring that. Did you learn anything about, because um, like my knowledge of incarceration is just extends as far as Wikipedia. So did you learn anything sophisticated or more substantial as to like what percentage of incarcerated people are innocent? Because that's a concern of mine. I remember reading, I do, I have like a stack of criminal justice textbooks. Sure. And I'm not trying to like throw you on the spot. I'm just curious <laughs> to, to know if you, if you have any experience with that. I do remember there being like a unit on it. Um, and while I don't remember specific numbers, so I'm not going to cite anything. Um, sure. I, it's higher than we would like to think. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard to discern the difference in those types of cases because the police have so much power. The police are in bed with the prosecutors. They both have the same job and that's putting someone in jail. They don't care mm -hmm. necessarily what the evidence is as long as they have the person that they think did it. Sometimes they'll kind of build the evidence around that, you know, and that happens a lot more than we'd like to believe. And that take to fix that problem would take, you know, extreme amounts of reform on that level of the police and the prosecution and the judges kind of all being in cahoots. And then you have the defense lawyer and the criminal on this side. What chance does someone like that really have, especially if it's a public defender, you know? Mm -hmm. I've read studies, um, or I haven't read the studies, but I've read of studies showing that, um, you know, like a lot of the abuse that occurs in the in the prison system is 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 more frequently guard on prisoner than it is prisoner on prisoner. Is that something that you're familiar with? Is that true? Oh, yeah. A lot. Lots of um, assaults and, you know, sexual assaults in women's prisons happens a lot. Um, lots of like, I don't want to use the word abuse, but very, you know, corporal punishment in male prisons, especially. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's something we kind of all, I think, just we're, we don't see it. So we don't think about it, right? We're not in those experiences. So it's not really something we have to consider. But when, when you look up the statistics of actually how much happens and how many cases there are that get reported and how much doesn't happen to advocate for those victims in the prison because they're criminals. Um, mm. You know, that's all an institutional problem too. I have a friend who was sentenced to three years in prison uh, year, many years ago, back in the nineties. And, um, you know, he was guilty and everything, but he said that the worst part of his experience was actually the time that you spend in jail before you're convicted he said the treatment from the guards was like way more intense. Like they just kind of talk down to you. They, they say you're so fucked, you know, and they just like try to make it as they try to terrorize you as much as possible. And then that, he said that once he actually was convicted and went to, went to the, like the real prison that it was, it cooled off a little bit, but I don't know if that's still true today. It was, you know, 30 years ago. I think that there's definitely an understanding on pretty much all like a general understanding that County jails are worse than like the federal penitentiaries there's like a joke you know within the community where it's like if you get arrested do do a federal crime because you want to go to the federal pen you don't want to go to the county jail or you know the state state jail and i don't know why that is but i know that um you know it probably has to do with 
there's more regulations, you know, in federal mm -hmm. prisons. I know that there's still for-profit prisons and there's much less regulation in those. Um, there's a lot more ability to hide things that happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that it has probably just a lot to do with the federal level being involved. There's more standards that they have to meet. Right. That makes sense. Well, and, you know, I've heard of instances, too, where, you know, prisoners are um, in this. I think this kind of came about. I don't know if it came about with like the mob or with um, trying to prevent gang violence. But it seems very peculiar to me that, you know, it's sort of just up to the prison as to who can visit you. Um, because it seems like, uh, you know, if, if you're sentenced to a long stretch and you're not allowed to say, you know, have your wife visit, you know, every month or whatever, just, you know, for you to have some sort of a relationship with somebody on the outside, uh, that would seem to me like it would kind of cross into the bounds of cruel and unusual punishment that, you know, it's one thing to isolate someone in prison, but to totally isolate them from the relationships in the outside world seems like the recidivism rate would go higher uh in that way too but have, have you it's it, do you know anything about like the laws or the rules behind that i mean can the prison just basically say no you can't see this person i don't know visitor. I'm, yeah yeah i'm not i'm honestly not sure how that stuff works i don't know if that's individually by the prison or if it's you know decided at a higher level i'm not sure yeah did you um did you ever watch that ted talk um i think the guys from the uk that did it but it was about um addiction and um what they did i don't think i don't know if it was amsterdam i can't remember what country it was but he talks about um how um this country totally revamped the way that it dealt with addiction and then rather than like criminalizing people for drug use they invested all the resources into making sure that people get as integrated back in the community as quickly as possible uh well you know as soon as they're out of rehab is there is there any like research or or, or reform that um you've looked into as 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 far as getting people integrated back, because like if you're convicted of a serious crime, you're really only shot to be successful in terms of like a real career is if you like start your own business when you get out, because you're not going to get hired at any fortune 500 company. Um, you know, you might be able to get some sort of a, you know, like a lower level job at, um, you know, minimum wage or whatever, but what's sort of the thinking that you, that you picked up on, uh, how to get people integrated back in the society? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's interesting that you mentioned the decriminalization of the drugs and, you know, mm -hmm. getting people help, because that is like a central focus of a lot of what I studied was what are the best ways that we can actually put this into effect? And, you know, what does it look like in our society? And unfortunately, I still think that we haven't figured that out yet. Portland or Oregon, I don't, I can't remember. I think it was statewide. Um, on our last, or in the last election, we decriminalized heroin, meth, cocaine, um, you know, like hard, hard street drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the thinking behind it was like, okay, let's help these people rather than put them in jail. But they fell short and that they decriminalized this and then they haven't done anything to help these people. So you'll see in Portland, it, if you look up the um, Instagram account, I think it's literally just named Portland looks like shit. Um, <laughs> it, it'll, it shows like neat, just people taking videos of needles that are just strewn about the ground, people just passing out. And it's so sad because you feel awful for these people that are obviously suffering from addiction, but 
no, no one's doing anything to help them except feeding them needles and allowing them to do drugs with no consequences. Yeah, it's more of like an enabling than it is an intervention type system. Exactly. So, so that, you know. I was going to say that uh, TED talk that I watched, the guy cites this study that was done on mice. And basically what they did was they took these mice and they would put them in like a boring cage and they would give them water that was laced with cocaine versus regular water. And he said in that instance, the mice would always choose the cocaine water. He's like, but they take, they would take the mice then and they would put them in like what I think they called it like mice heaven or something. It was basically like all sorts of like mazes and, you know, tubes for them to run through, like just total fun stuff that they love and like allow them to like have as much sex as they wanted with other mice. And um, they found that when the mice were in that environment, they would choose the regular water over the cocaine water, even when it was offered to them. And so like, that's sort of like, like extrapolating that on people. It's like, you know, maybe the, and, and he, he also cited Vietnam, like an overwhelming number of Vietnam soldiers used heroin while they were in Vietnam, but like 95% of them never did it again when they came back. Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right, so if, if, if addiction is, you know, really this super physical thing, then how did, you know, how did 95% of veterans, you know, just kick it as soon as they, you know, got back on, on, on the, uh, in the United States. And so uh, the argument that, that he made was that the reason people abuse substances is not because they have physical addictions, but because they have like a psychological isolation. Like they don't feel connected to their family. They're not enjoying their life. I don't know. It's it's like external factors. And so if you want to solve the addiction problem, you know, decriminalization is probably part of it, but you have to to juxtapose that with like massive investment in, you know, programs that can reintegrate these people into into communities, right? So take the money that you're saving, but, you know, busting them, but then, you know, have these programs in place. And we saw the same thing that that you're describing in Portland. We saw the same thing in Austin where, you know, for a while they allowed all the homeless people in Austin to uh, camp in the city on any public ground. And they've they've recently fixed that. And, uh, you know, I don't really have so much a problem with that policy if you also have like these programs in place to get these people off the streets as soon as possible, but they had no solution right. to homelessness. And so it just consolidated the problem downtown for like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in how we can solve this problem so that we can get people reintegrated because I really do think that, that the, the crime thing is, is a product of environment and not character in most cases, you know, mm-hmm. like the white crawler crime stuff, like those guys are just shit bags. But if you're, yeah. if, you know, if you, if you got a drug problem, it's usually because something happened, you right. know, or, or you're not connected. So I don't know. I'm not an expert, but I don't know. I'm just interested in how we can solve that problem. Yeah. I actually just watched something. I can't remember what it was. It must have been some crime documentary I was watching. But this guy got arrested and charged and convicted of something that was like, it was something, you know, silly and stupid. It was a drug charge or something like that. Um and it was his first offense, and he got convicted, like, I mean, they threw the book at him pretty hard, I can't remember the exact details, and he was explaining, after he got out of jail, he's like, I couldn't get a job anywhere, and I had fees and fines to pay from my conviction, and I had to commit 20 more crimes to pay that off, because no one would give me a job, so it's like, we have to, I think that re-entering them into the community, a big big part of that has to do with creating jobs for them and like getting them into programs that can educate them and give them vocational training um because a lot of them commit crimes because they need money and Mm -hmm. they can't get jobs 
elsewhere and you know people won't hire them because they're criminals so i think the job aspect is really kind of like as long as they're mentally you know good and and everything that's a big big step into fixing the process of getting people rehabilitated well a lot of people have criticized um you know reagan for the war on drugs in that you know it caused a lot of people in minority communities to um become incarcerated and then sort of made a lot like a whole generation of people fatherless in a lot of instances. And, you know, I'm not sure where I land in terms of interpreting what happened or how it happened, but what are your thoughts in terms of like what happened to the minority communities in the United States? Because, you know, if you look at pictures of like MLK and back during the civil rights movement, you see, you know, people, minorities in in suits protesting. They're very, there's like a nuclear family. There's a lot of sort of trad values in those communities. And it seems like something happened in the seventies that sort of totally flipped the switch in, in those communities that just made them sort of infested with crime in a lot of instances. What, what are your thoughts on, on why that happened? I mean, I think that unfortunately the war on drugs brought a lot of addiction with it, right? Like people that wouldn't have necessarily been exposed to or done those drugs did because they were suddenly being, you know, this is constantly talked about. Yeah. And like, it's, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with it. If you focus on something so much, people are going to naturally be drawn to it or inclined to know more about it or whatever. And I think that that's a very powerful thing and people don't realize that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a weird, it is a weird phenomenon and I would like to maybe do more research into it because I don't have a great understanding of it either, but I think that has a lot to do with it of just it brought being brought to the forefront and, um, you know, suddenly we're treating addicts like criminals and it is taking fathers away from families. And it is sort of like what I just mentioned there, being taken away from their families, charged, thrown in jail, have fines to pay. They can't get a job. How are they supposed to pay them? Commit more crimes. And it kind of just starts the whole process that we see today over and over and over again. Yeah. And I, I think that inflation probably had something to do with it too. Cause just imagine these, these sort of lower middle-class communities that were sort of just barely making ends meet and getting by in the seventies. And then all of a sudden we kind of go off the gold standard and the value of the dollar is, you know, plummeting because the inflation in the seventies is well-documented and famous, infamous rather. And it seems like that might've tipped a lot of these communities over into having to lean on crime. Whereas, you know, 10 years prior, the job was actually enough to cut it. Right. Yeah. I think that's the case. That could be the case in a lot of places. That makes sense. So how'd you get so many followers on Twitter? How'd you, uh, how'd you blow up? (laughs) I don't know, honestly. Um, I've always kind of done the political writing thing. I've been in some form or another um, writing about politics on social media since I was like 16 or 17. Um, I started my blog slash site when I was like 18. And then just like a year and a half ago or a couple years ago, I started just kind of really focusing on Twitter. I was trying to figure out what my kind of brand was and where I could promote my work. Um, And I was doing it on Facebook for a while, but that was just like a lot of old people. Uh, And then they started thinking that I was liberal because I was too non-conservative for them. It's Um, it's crazy how people put you in one of two boxes. Like (laughs) whenever somebody tweets, you know, you're just, you're just a racist Republican to me. I always just say, don't you dare call me a Republican. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
It's so offensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, um, I mean, Twitter's a great place to kind of take. I, I think that my sense of humor um, has kind of helped my popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just very dry sense of humor. And oh I'm my very- god, that's that Southwest what you did this afternoon. I was dying. <laughs> it's so subtle, you know, but it just like it says so much. A picture says a thousand words, right? <laughs> yeah. So just I don't know. I think I'm pretty funny. I like to think I'm pretty funny. Um, and I just like I have a good time. I mean, I bitch about yeah. stuff, but at the end of the day, like I'm just there to stay informed because I think like Twitter is a great resource for staying caught up on politics it's about the totally. best one i've ever found um so i'm there to you know do that and and bullshit and talk and have fun and i make a lot of jokes and people like it apparently <laughs> have you ever had your account suspended i i did like really really early on when i was kind of blowing up like faster in my early thousands mm-hmm. um but i've kind of figured out what i can and can't say uh and while it's annoying to have to, you know, tiptoe around that stuff, I think that I still get my message across pretty well without breaking terms of service. So yeah, yeah, you can you can definitely do it. It just it just scares me that they're able to just totally remove people. Like um, you know, like the election fraud stuff. Mm-hmm. I have mixed feelings about it. I don't really know where I land. I go back and forth all the time on me too on what I think on that. But the fact that they just removed every account that was sort of adamant one way or the other. Or not one way or the other, but one way. Right. Um, it's like really, really alarming to me. Um, so I, I don't know. I worry about that. And I, put, I spend so much time trying to build my Twitter just because I'm trying to build this podcast. And right. I'm scared that like, what if one day they just take it away? You know, was this that's all for what not? I worry about too. I mean, that's definitely a valid concern. Um, my friend Gretchen, who lives down the street, actually, her, her she had a pretty big account. I think she was. I mean, well, over 40 or 45,000, um, her at was Bubola, B-U-B-O-L-A. And she was really big um, on our side of Twitter. And they nuked her for some reason. And she literally doesn't know why. Like, I, I, she lives close to me. So we're still, you know, friends. But she's like, I don't, I can't think of what I did that would lead to that. And they totally took her account down. Like, she appealed it as much as she could. And they wouldn't give it back to her. And she has no idea what she did. Oh man, you almost have to like know somebody at Twitter in order to get that kind of thing fixed. Like, I was fortunate enough; I have one or two friends that went to work at Facebook, and I've had a couple of instances where my um, Facebook account has been taken down. Um, not because of anything that I said, but I'm uh, I run ads for clients, so I'm, I'm an admin on like over 200 different Facebook ads manager accounts, oh. and so whenever any of those ads managers like whenever any of my clients you know sometimes they're former clients and whenever they break the terms of service of facebook it shows me as an admin still on the ads manager and so if you get enough of those they like restrict your account and but it's like a nightmare because it's like i gotta manage ads for all these other clients that i have and i didn't i wasn't the one that made the ad from the ex client i'm just still an admin on the account and so i had to call people that actually work there and be like dude can you pull some strings because this appeal process is a nightmare but i feel like if you don't know somebody at these companies you're you're basically at the whim of whoever is conducting the review yeah i mean pretty much and it sucks and like first i mean I hope that it's not anybody's livelihood because things can happen like that. But I would be, you know, really sad. People, oh, it's Twitter, whatever. But like, no, I would, I have a community here. I have, I've made friends through Twitter. Like I have, there's been opportunities for me. I've met people, like I've made political connections. 
I would be absolutely devastated if they just nuked my account for no reason. Um, but that's why I think it's important to kind of like branch out and like, you know, I, I try to promote my work elsewhere, but it's kind of hard because Twitter is just like the best place to do it. And yeah, you just kind of have to live with the fact that someday it, you could wake up and it, you won't have it anymore. And that's got to be fine because it can happen. I blocked somebody on Instagram the other day and I noticed that they changed the blocking feature so that you can not only block them, but block any other accounts that they make in the future. Did you notice really? that? Yeah. No. So they can't like, they can't make like a fake page, you know, and then, and then, you know, follow you again. And oh my it's, God. Uh, it's like, cre- it's like creepy, but it's a good feature, I guess, you know, from a user standpoint, but it's like, wow, you, you can, you can like perma block somebody in a way that, cause if they're using the same device, I guess is how they track it or IP. I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah. Cause like, I, I would imagine like you obviously can't make another account with the same email. So they've got to track it. Like, that's yeah, your IP. I know it's creepy stuff, and I'm creeped out about this. Like, um, uh, the new Apple scanning your images stuff is 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 freaking me out. Not because I don't have any CP on my phone, but it's like Jesus yeah. Christ. Like, <laughs> you know how much how much how much can they read? Like, I don't know. It's just it's it's scary stuff. But it's I don't know. We'll crazy. see what happens. It's crazy too that that can happen, and like, that's just what it is. Like, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I know it's Apple, so they can do that if they want, but like they have so much power these days that they can like just do that and yeah. nobody gets to say. <laughs> so have you, do you use other platforms too? Like uh, Instagram or TikTok? Um, I'm smaller on Instagram. I don't have TikTok, um, but I do. Instagram is probably like my secondary platform. Yeah. I just got, um, I just, I've just been kind of tooling around with TikTok for the first time. And I, you know, I was reluctant to do it for a long time because the commies, you know, own it. But then I, then I realized that the commies pretty much run all the social media platforms. So I figured it was just moot. And so, so, uh, but the crazy thing about TikTok is even if you have no followers, you can have like the virality potential is so high. So I, I did like, I don't know, it was maybe my 10th video ever. I've got like 500 followers. I had at the time, like 300 followers is just a few days ago on, on TikTok. I did a video and it got 320,000 views. Wow. And it's just, and I guess, I guess the way the algorithm works is like you can make three different lengths of videos. You can make up to 15 second videos. You can make up to one minute videos and you can make up to three minute videos. And depending on the size of your video, there's an algorithm that requires a minimum like average watch time to determine how many feeds to put it in. So for example, if you have like a 10 second video, and it, it you, you need to get like a hundred you need to get people to watch it all the way through in order for it to oh, okay. like consider it viral but if you have a three minute one it's like 50 percent, right and so i had like this nine second video and um i guess you know a great enough number of people who saw it watched it all the way through that tiktok put it in like you know more more feeds and then that worked and then more feeds and more feeds and all of a sudden it's like i'm this 300 wow. you know subscriber i have 300 subscribers on tiktok and i got 320,000 views and i gained 500 followers off of it you know so that's what's exciting to me about tiktok is just the virality potential seems high totally you know? and i i think that that i should branch into tiktok my sister is 18 18 yeah 19 yeah. I don't remember, something like that but she's loves tiktok and she's been telling me for like a year you need to get on tiktok you need to do tiktoks and i'm like 
I'm like a little bit too old that I'm like intimidated by it. Like I don't know how to make the videos and do the filters and like the editing and shit. And just just do it and make some bad content first, you know. Yeah. You'll, figure, <laughs> yes. you'll figure it out. Like I was really bad at Twitter when I started doing Twitter. I'm like, what the hell is this? What what's this 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 gadget here? You know, I'm <laughs> 30, so I was like, you know, I was like a MySpace guy, you know, <laughs> like, you know, 15 years ago. So I don't know, but you, you just get that. It's just like anything else. There's a learning curve, and then you get the hang of it. I still haven't gotten the hang of TikTok, but I am gonna start experimenting based on that and it's like funny on twitter too you learn what what tweets resonate i, right. I like I, I you know i test stuff all the time i'll do like five tweets at the same time and then i'll delete the four that don't perform uh-huh. but you start to get a knack for it totally you learn what like people respond to and what people engage with and you know it's like a subconscious thing at this point like i feel like i've been doing it for so long that i kind of i'll think i'm just like thinking of tweets all day long my head is just yeah. like a writing factory all the time and so I'll think of, you know, a hundred tweets, but I'm like, eh, 90 of those are funny, but they're not, I can't figure out how to word it right. Or like, I can't figure out the right, like grammar to use. So it's like not going to pop off. So then right. you kind of just figure it out and, and narrow it down. And yeah, I think I've gotten pretty good at it. But do you have certain, do. do you have certain times of the day that you prefer to tweet or do you just tweet whenever you feel like it? I tweet whenever I feel like it. I know that there's better times you know, where more people are on. Um, but I sleep at such weird hours and like work at weird hours. So I pretty much just tweet whenever I want. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way. I've just noticed that like Sundays are really slow and maybe it's cause I have like this boomer Christian crowd uh, that follows <laughs> yeah. me. Cause like the first thing that went viral for me is I did like a, I did a podcast with Tony Schaefer and he like said some, he had like a badass one minute rant about how attorney general Bill Barr called him and told him to stop investigating election fraud. And that went viral, but it went viral like on Citizens Free Press. And so I had like all these sort of like over 60 people that followed yeah. me in short order. And so now it's like, I have like really like. live we'll be back soon oh are you there i'm i'm there you were frozen Did, for a while yeah, yeah you froze you froze too for a while so oh, man. yeah i was just say, i was just saying that it's just funny because it's like 5 a.m is a real hot time for my crowd you know and like no. pretty much, <laughs> it's like pretty much after seven o'clock it's uh uh, uh everybody's asleep so i don't know but it, don't tweet at that four o'clock dinner time either yeah, I know, right? People get mad. Why, why are you Why are you tweeting me while I'm trying to eat dinner? <laughs> My favorite thing is when old people think that certain posts, like a post that you just post, is directed like directly at them, and they think that it's like a message to them. That's oh, my yeah. favorite. Or like when you, when you get a text from an old person and they sign their name at the end. Yeah, my grandma does that all the time. My grandma, I know it's you. I have your name in my phone. <laughs> That's the funniest stuff. So what are like, what's like the next step for you? What are your goals? Um, because like, obviously you're really active on social media, you're writing and you're sort you're very intentional about what you're doing. Do you have like a vision like for where you want to be? I mean, are you like, if I could just get a hundred thousand followers and I could do X, Y, Z or what, what are you just playing it by ear? Yeah. I mean, I want to be as heavily involved as I can. My ultimate goal, I would love to write a book um, or multiple yeah. books. Writing is yeah. really kind of always been my central love and I've built politics around that because I can write about politics. Um, but at the end of the day, 
just writing is really what I want to do. So if that comes with writing with politics and I have a career that way, then great. Um, and if not, you know, I'll write a book about something else. But um, what do you have yeah. in mind for a book that you want to write? Have you thought of anything? I have like a million and a half ideas. I mean, I have probably 10 half written novels on my computer and just like, I mean, now that I have graduated, I have sort of given myself permission to write more academically about politics because I have the piece of paper to back it up. Um, so I'd like to explore politics as much as I can. That is really ideally what I would like to do and just kind of go down this commentary path. Um, but, you know, one of my biggest inspirations uh, from the very beginning has always been Tommy Lahren. And, you know, we don't agree on everything politically by any means, but just the way that she's kind of made this career for herself and really forged a path for herself as a, she's super young. Her and I, I think are the exact same age or she's a couple years older than me. Um, so just seeing her do what she's done, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. Like, I want to do that. Um, so yeah, I guess that's sort of my, my ultimate goal. Awesome. Well, I'll keep you in mind if I, if I know anybody in the, if I run into anybody that's looking for a writer, cause like I could see you totally writing for like a human events or something, you know, I had Will Chamberlain on the, on the podcast a couple of days ago. Awesome, he's, he's, I mean, I'm not saying that I, I don't know him well enough to like plug you, but it just seems to me that you'd be a really good fit at, at a, um, an outlet like that, you know, sort of like a, 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 a burgeoning, um, sort of, independent critical thinking type platform i think it would be really cool for you i'd love to where where, where can people read your writing um uh, i know you mentioned in the beginning that you write for rogue review i do so in all of my social media i have a link tree in my bio that links kind of to everything um because i have my column on rogue review and then i have my own website um and then i've like guest written you know what's your twitter handle it's yeah right girl y-e-a-h yeah right girl h-g um, okay, and my website cool. is the same. It's yawritegirl.com. Um, and a, the biggest chunk of my writing is on my on my own website. Very cool. Well, I'm going to make sure to, to tune in and play, pay closer attention. I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. My pleasure.